I just wanted to just, A, to really thank you because Aww. that moment kind of when you tweeted that, mm-hmm. it really showed me like, oh my God, people might actually understand like what we're trying to do. Welcome to episode six of the Spectrum Lounge. Host Rebecca Theodore Vachon speaks with creator, executive producer, and showrunner Chio Hadari Coker of the Netflix series Luke Cage. Listen to this in-depth discussion about season one and the themes surrounding season two with the introduction of this season's newest villain, Bushmaster, played by Mustafa Shakir. Please be advised that this episode contains major spoilers as well as frank discussions of sexual abuse. Proceed at your own risk. Welcome to the Spectrum Lounge. (laughs) (laughs) I'm your host, Rebecca Theodore Fashan, and I have a very special guest with me tonight, Cheo Hadari Coker, who is the creator and showrunner of Luke Cage on Netflix. Executive producer, too. Executive producer, (laughs) yes. (laughs) So just a warning, this is going to be a spoiler-filled podcast. Everything you want to know about Luke Cage season two. If you have not watched it, turn it off. Do not listen to this podcast until you've listened. Well, yeah, until you've no, watched it. No, because it's, it's, it's about to get ill. I mean, I'm about to reveal everything. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we know this is your first show as a creator and showrunner. Uh-huh. So what I want to ask you is what were some of the lessons or mistakes that you learned from in season one and taking that into season two? Well, that's an interesting thing because the thing as a showrunner that you learn is that you don't run the show, the show runs you Hmm. in terms of schedule, in terms of every aspect of it. um, You have to kind of give yourself 100% over to the show. But the thing that you learn is that even as it seems that you're fighting for every moment, no matter what happens, as showrunner, you always get it back from the standpoint of you might feel like a decision is out of your hands, mm-hmm. but eventually it always comes back. You right. Know? One of the things that I always say that was kind of like my, my private joke was that, you know, everybody at, at, at some point was like, fuck Chael, Ford doesn't think. <laughs> <laughs> Which means that, like, you know, you have to just kind of be relaxed and just understand that um, – as much as you want to control things, you kind of have to let it go and then see where things end up. And then, you know, if you were right, then it'll it'll come back to you. And if you were wrong, then you got to kind of let things go a different direction. Um, I think the thing is, ultimately, mm-hmm. the hardest thing to do as a showrunner is there will be moments when 10 or 15 really smart people tell you that something's a bad idea. And your gut is telling you that this is what we're doing. And you just have to stick with that. There are a couple of moments. There was the moment this season where, you know, Rakim is the Terrence Malick of hip-hop. And there were a lot of times where people were like, okay, song's not in. You know, we're going to be filming tomorrow. we got to film something. You don't really have the song yet. You don't have the confirmation. Is this really going to happen? It's completely irresponsible. And I was the one that kept saying, like, this is what we're doing. It's gonna, it's gonna happen, mm. you know. And then, of course, the, the other moment was season one. Neither Marvel nor Netflix wanted the Method Man moment to happen because it's, they, they felt like a, like, why would Luke Cage stop this bodega robbery? B, w- would a rapper really be there? And C, if a rapper was there, would they write a song? And who's gonna write the song? And it's gonna be corny. And I'm like, not if we get meth. As long as, like, if we don't get meth, then fine, we don't do it. But we gotta get meth because just knowing him for so long and also having seen how he's grown as, as an actor. 
um, you know, on the wire. Oh, yeah. And just knowing that, like, he would get the acne part, but then also knowing that he still was a fire MC. And that also the thing about Meth is that he's also, like, interestingly enough, uh, as a writer, would be able to write something about Luke Cage that would feel relevant and that would fit the show because he's a comic book head. That was the thing that both Rakim and, and Method Man did was that they wrote songs that fit Luke Cage, but at the same time fit their own aesthetic. So speaking of decisions, because I always feel like it's a, it's a new world for showrunners and creators where you're in Twitter, and so now there's a direct line where you're hearing the feedback mm-hmm. from viewers, right? So we know from season one, there was a lot of pushback as to your decision to kill off Cottonmouth, right? Because right. we know Maharshal Ali is a beast. And everybody was like, ah, once he was killed, they were like, this show is never going to recover from that. So I want to know, A, was that always your intention mm-hmm. to write him off? And did you regret writing him off once you saw sort of like the critiques um, and the backlash? Well, the answer was it was yes, it was always a plan, and no, I don't regret it mm. for a couple of reasons. Um, the thing that people don't really realize is that Cottonmouth was always going to die. The influence for that was, this is, goes all the way back to me being a comic book geek, I go all the way back to issue number 12 for the first run of Alpha Flight mm. when John Byrne killed Guardian. Like, I just remember it as a rug pull. Like, there was nothing that prepared me for that. The same way also, you know, in my favorite Spider-Man story, um, you know, Craven's Last Hunt. Nothing prepared me as a, as a kid, as a teenager, when Spider-Man, you know, in that story arc was killed. Really, mm. For many months, I mean, you know, between books, you're like, he's not coming back. And it was just like how you felt as an audience. We wanted to have something that, A, would shock the audience for the seven episodes, because you know, at the time we knew the seven episodes were going to go to press, so we wanted we wanted to have a season cliffhanger. At the same time, we also wanted to do it in such a way that it would propel another character, in this case, um, Mariah Dillard, into another realm. And then we also wanted to have a strong introduction. We thought at the time for for Diamondback. The thing was, and this is the interesting, most interesting thing about it, was that the reason that Mahershala Ali signed on to do the show was because he was going to be killed in seven episodes. Because what very few people understand is that he had been on House of Cards for a number of years and was, um, you know, I'm hoping I'm not speaking for him, but I think he was frustrated by the fact that, you know, he was signed, but that they weren't really using him that much. They kind of ran out of what to do with his storyline. He was making films like, you know, he he filmed... um, this is the really most incredible thing about Mahershala was that he filmed Moonlight, Hidden Figures, and Luke Cage all at the same time. That's why he has the same hairstyle in all three movies. Wow. Because he couldn't shave it. He couldn't really change his hair. So yeah. So he was doing all three at the same time. Like weekends, he'd be like, yo, what are you doing? He's like, yeah, um, I'm doing this film in Florida. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know? Wow. Or, or I need a day off because I, I, I got to film a couple of scenes in Florida. And then, you know, months before I was talking to uh, Barry Jenkins, he's like, yo, what are you doing? I, I, I got this movie that I'm working on, you know? So it was just it was just kind of this interesting thing. And then, and then, of course, one of my best friends, um, Mimi Valdez, who I've known all the way back to the Vibe days from when we were first started being journalists, hip-hop journalists in the early 90s, mm. she was one of the producers on Hidden Figures, of course. And so she was like, yeah, Mahershala's here, and it's incredible. But the thing was, was that Mahershala, he knew that, um, the appeal for Luke Cage was he dug the role and that it was limited. Mm-hmm. And so that was the whole reason he took the role. What It's not a regret, but what I didn't anticipate was that people would love his portrayal so much that it would bar them from giving 
you know, Erica Ray Harvey a chance. Mm. And because a lot of what happened was the, was the blowback, the hate was just emotional. Right. You know, and so as a result, it's like, oh, Diamondback sucks. He's this, he's that. It also <laughs> took us a minute to really kind of figure out his voice. Right. We didn't really kind of start to really figure out his voice until episode nine. And then really, I think really finally we really began to nail it by episode 11. But the thing was, was that uh, as Jeff Loeb has said, um, or he would say internally to us, he said, you know, Mahershala couldn't follow Mahershala. Like, oh, <laughs> so, well. <laughs> so, you know, the thing is, is like, do I regret it? No, I don't regret it because also part of the problem was it's like Luke Cage has superpowers, you know, Cottonmouth doesn't. Like, at what point is he going to just snap his neck or do something different? And so we were kind of running out of things to do. And so the thing was, and maybe killing him might not have been the wisest solution, but it was really kind of the circumstances in terms of the business end of Mahershala not wanting to sign a longer deal and wanting to really kind of go out with a bang and, right. on the show. And also just kind of some of the emotional things that we were trying to overall do with, with the show. Probably the biggest mistake, honestly, was with Diamondback in terms of not in terms of the character or in terms of the actor. Because I, I still think Eric Ray Harvey did an incredible job. It was the suit. Frankly, the suit was corny. Like, <laughs> I mean, you know, the thing was, was that, but the thing that I've learned from hip hop and just in general is mm -hmm. like, you know, if something doesn't turn out the way that you want it to and you see a moment that's just kind of ill and because of the fact that it's ill you can kind of take the sting off of it you know the funny thing was was um, we were on set and when Eric LeRae first walked out you know Alfred Woodard saw him in the suit and said what kind of Jean-Paul Gaultier shit is this Woo! <laughs> and, Alfred? and okay. we just started we just started cracking up and right. then you know I'm on set and so immediately I'm thinking okay alright this is what we're doing Ron that's your line now so <laughs> And put it in the show. And that's why Ron Cephas <laughs> Jones, you know, says that. Right, And right. then it just, it kind of went from this whole thing of just kind of like being like this moment, mm -hmm. you know, and then it just like, you know, you just go, you just go with it. You right, know? right. One of the lessons we learned is that we wanted people that could fight Luke Cage with powers on his terms. Mm. Because, you know, that's the thing is like, if you do it too realistically, if you have a Luke Cage that can't punch anybody because by punching them, you've killed them, you're going to have a stilted fighter. Yeah. You're not going to have somebody that can really get down. Like, smack food will only get you so far. Smack you, food. <laughs> you, ha you, you, you have to get to a point where you yeah. really can't have him hit and be hit, hit back and it not being some suit. And so that was the thing just in terms of introducing somebody with powers into, you know, the fabric of season two. Right. And that's really the thing about Bushmaster and about Mustafa Shakir's just masterful portrayal of him was that, um, you know, in a lot of ways physically, it was somebody that Mike Coulter as Luke Cage could fight against. Right. And um, this is one of those things where it's just like, I think season two is Luke Cage 2.0. It's like, I really think that we've improved the show, hoping that people feel the way that we feel about it in a lot of ways. I think in a ways that are going to surprise people, frankly, mm -hmm. that, that, have, that have already written us off. Right. I, <laughs> like, I got you. <laughs> well, I, well, I mean, you know, the thing is, it's like, as an ex-critic, like yeah. I, I've got a very thick skin. You have to mm. if you're going to be on Twitter, if you're going to read what everybody says. Oof. And I think the fun part for me is I respond. Like someone will say some crazy shit about you know mm. about how much they hate the show, and then I and then I write them back. Like you know, and I'm, I know that they're like, wait a minute, but wait, this is actually the guy. There's actually a check next to his name. This isn't a troll. <laughs> this is, you know, this is actually Jay Coker writing me back and saying like, come on, you know, it's right. It's fun, honestly. It's like, come on. You yeah, know, yeah. It's like you have to have a sense of humor about it because the thing is, it's like it's real easy to basically say, "Well, I would do this, and I would do that," but you got a budget, you've got eight writers, you've got 
actors, you've got all these different things, and you've got a, a motor going, and mm-hmm. you have to make these decisions, and you have to stick by these decisions. Right. And it isn't even like a regular situation where, you know, you can put out a couple episodes and see how people think, and then, okay, let's pivot. Mm-hmm. You have to make decisions and stick with them because you're going to figure this out for all 13. Right. You know, because this is going to drop worldwide day and date, and so, at the, so you have to film them all because – you're going to dub them all simultaneously in all these different languages. You're going to have to go through post-production. You're going to have to go through two different sets of standards, both internal Marvel standards and Netflix international eight, you know, 4K Ooh. Dolby Vision standards. And so these decisions are just like, you better be right. Right. <laughs> you know, so it's like <laughs> after a while, no pressure. You know, you just got to, you know, the thing is, it's like you have to really stick to your guns and then you hope for the best. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But, right. but you got to do something. Right. You know? Yeah. So let's talk about Bushmaster. So Mustafa Shakir is basically the, I don't, I can't even really call him a villain. And I, I've had discussions with friends and I think this is one of the reasons, one of the things that I think Marvel does so well, because this kind of goes back to Killmonger is that the, they're so well fleshed out. They're so three dimensional and complex. I never thought of Bushmaster as a villain because he has an axe to grind. <laughs> um, but one of the things, because I think with season two of Luke Cage, there's there's a lot to unpack on this yeah. season. And I think, particularly with the Bushmaster uh, character, one of the things that I really uh, appreciated, and I don't feel like that's really an open discussion that we have in uh, our community, was sort of like the whole black American experience versus the West Indian Mm-hmm. experience right and so watching that it, it made me think uh because i'm first generation haitian american mm-hmm. and just kind of thinking of the biases and the bigotry that we have towards each other and you and you see that in every episode just sort of you know well, well that that was the thing because it wasn't yeah. just about okay one two friends one you know a jamaican immigrant and a recent transplant from the south who are both washing dishes you know, say, hey, one day we're going to own our own club. And then they form this club, Harlem's Paradise, and they have this collaboration. But then once they get muscled by, one of them gets muscled by the mob and the Jamaican, because, you know, Jamaica, like Haiti, is about resistance and mm-hmm. about overthrowing, you know, your oppressors and pride versus the reality of having lived in a system where slavery was unbroken until they broke it themselves, meaning, you know, the masters, so be it, and, and from the American experience. It was two different perspectives. And then ultimately, because the Stokes has said, you know what? We're not going to lose what we've built to this to this point because my partner's stubborn. You know, we'll take him out. Once that decision was made, it basically put two different families on two different paths. Right. But then at the same time, it's also kind of gave us the opportunity in terms of um, the storytelling of just the resentment from two different sides. The resentment from people from the islands that come and say, like, I don't understand why y'all aren't working as hard as we are. Because our perspective is we came here with nothing, and now it's like, my cousin, my other cousin, we've formed our own business. You know, we're out here doing two, three, four, five jobs, mm-hmm. and we're doing this, and we don't get, we don't understand, like, like why y'all are out here, basically collecting from, you know, collecting checks from the government and and being mad and feeling sorry for yourself without understanding just how the government, you know, and just how racism had basically, from the standpoint of post-traumatic stress and just of 300 years of, of continuous slavery and ra- in a racist system that, you know, thing is, is racism, it's, it's, it's still very real mm. and the, re- the ramifications of it. From the American perspective, it's just like, we've been through so much and this has only, it's only really been about 45 years 
post reconstruction post all these different things that things are finally beginning to right themselves to a certain extent but still we have a long way to go it's these two different perspectives that they don't really that don't understand each other but this goes all the way back to you know Marcus Garvey versus WB Du Bois this this is these are things that have been around for a long time and the, and the really interesting thing about a show like Luke Cage is that the comic book stories is really a, it's a Trojan horse because then it allows us to get into these deeper conversations about culture and um, and it just, we really kind of get into these interesting moments of people being able to talk about this and it's designed to a certain extent for these conversations to happen you know for black Twitter for people from different sides to take little moments and talk about them. You've got the argument that Anansi and um, Mariah have in the office. And then the thing that really ultimately dooms Anansi to, to death is, is when he calls her a slave. and Because then when she kills him and burns him alive the same way that Bushmaster burned down her apartment, which really was him getting revenge for Mama Mabel burning his mother alive. Wow. Mariah must burn and yeah. all that stuff. Mm -hmm. The first thing after all this happens and, and the fact that, you know, um, Shades is, is just like mortified that Mariah's gone this far because we, what we did was we, we basically made Mariah Macbeth and we made Shades Lady Macbeth, you know. Mm -hmm. And so when you finally get to that moment and then she says, I'm not a slave for now and I'm free, you know, you just realize like, yo, <laughs> like, like, <laughs> like like this argument in, in the office that was kind of cultural one-upsmanship yes. has gone to a whole nother level. Right. And even to the moment where she walks in the office and sees the Marcus Garvey portrait on the wall and she says, peasant, you're showing the resentment from both sides. You're also showing how whoever controls the office at Harlem's Paradise and controls the perch where one can see all of Harlem controls Harlem from that place. And they have the right to basically change the station or basically put whatever portrait they want in the office and also pick who gets to play, you know, whatever songs in Harlem's Paradise. Right. So there's always kind of this power transition happening with, with a portrait coming down and a portrait going up mm. and perspectives. Right, right. So let's talk about Shades and Mariah. <laughs> because I remember that there was a ship. I mean, because I think this started maybe like towards the second half of the first somewhat I forget who it was they created a, a hashtag called Shady Mariah yeah. so it was like the ship for these two and I was like I don't know if they're gonna lean into that on the second season and I think that was just because I was like I'm trying to think of the last time that I've seen that type of relationship and an older browner skinned black woman mm -hmm. and having a younger Latino lighter skinned black never seen that Never yeah. seen that. And they just have incredible chemistry together. Well, well you know, that, that was the thing. It was like, it, it came from two lines. Mm. It came from episode six when Luke Cage has his, you know, in Nathan Jackson's script, when Luke Cage talked about, you know, criminal spinsters. He's like, what are you talking about? I'll wear your ass out. Like, yes. It, 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 it was, it was Alfre's <laughs> response in, in that moment. Right. And then it was the moment in the finale when um, she kisses Theo and then bites his lip. When she mm. bit his lip, I said, okay. Like, wow. Like, let, let's let's do something here. Was that in the script or was no, that? No, that, that's, that's, that's you know, My. She, 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 she bit his lip and then he had that smirk. I said, okay, <laughs> there, there's something going on here. <laughs> and so, like, let's lean into it. Because the fact yeah. of the matter is, how many how many movies have we seen where our, the male star is on the other side of 50? Yes. And, you know, the female love interest is, like, 25. Mm -hmm. You know, it happens all the time. All so, the time. Like, why should Hella Mirren have all the fun? You know, why not do a reverse where you see the complexities of a mature, sexually attractive, sexually assertive black woman mm -hmm. who is, with her level of power, acting the way men in power have acted all the time? 
Right. And, you know, and having a character like Shades who's there for it. And so let's explore it. Some people are, you know, some people are going to love it. Some people are going to be like, I'm going to cringe. But I don't care because mm-hmm. the actors themselves right. are in this weird kind of crazy thing. And so it's just like, let's just, let's be there for it. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you know, things, of course, even get more complex when we understand the different shades of Shades' relationship with Comanche. I was not ready for that one. Yeah. And and what's interesting is that I... I'm trying to think of the person who, the writer, I know she was a woman, who wrote that episode um, where... I, I ate a crow. Yes. It was so beautifully written because I'm watching the scene. They're sitting back to back with each other, and they're having this conversation. He keeps saying, it's different on the outside. And I'm like, what are they talking about? And then it was like, oh. And I think what was so refreshing about that scene is the fact that you had this black man who was confident in his sexual identity. Like, Comanche was like, I'm ready to I'm and, yeah and then Shay was like nope <laughs> keep it in the shadow <laughs> which I thought was really interesting yeah well I mean you know it was partially you know there are two influences one influence of course is Moonlight mm-hmm. the other influence of course is The Wire right because the the thing that was so dynamic about what Michael K. Williams did with Omar mm-hmm. was Omar is probably the first openly gay character that hip-hop embraced like yo that cat is hard and yo you know because you know the whole phrase yo people be like yo no homo but yo omar yo, that's my, that's, that's mm-hmm. my dude <laughs> you know what I'm right saying? you know it's like <laughs> people are like but it's that that's a long way mm-hmm. from literally from the use of the f word right constantly in hip-hop mm-hmm. and you know growing up like watching like you know eddie murphy delirious and you know the whole routines where where that word was just like that's kind of how, how people talked as opposed to even understanding Right. You know, any of these dynamics. And so the thing was, was it was interesting being able to portray that. And that was the thing even with, with um, you know, um, Thomas Jones. Mm-hmm. You know, like him being uncomfortable to a certain extent once he really realized, like, yo, like, man, like, okay, I'm about to do this in terms of even portraying this. I'm, I'm, an, I'm an NFL player. I'm very secure in my heterosexuality. And I'm about to do this. And then he just understanding, like, look, this is a character. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's no one more macho than The Rock. And right. The Rock was able to make that transition, like whether it was Pain or Gain and, and other movies where he's done that. And, and people understand that when you're playing a role, whatever the role is, that's the role, not necessarily you. Mm-hmm. And that was really what was courageous and interesting about, you know, Thomas Q. Jones' portrayal because, mm-hmm. you know, he said, okay, I'm an actor, I'm going for it. And so Comanche read very genuine. Yes. And, and then. It's the moment, and I think that's when Thomas really fully embraced it. Was the moment in episode seven when when when, when Shades kills him, Ooh, and yeah. it was just like scene seven. Episode seven is always the game changer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it, it yeah. always is. But see, but the key the key moment in 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 Nicole Morante Matthews script in episode seven is when Shades Shades is not killing Comanche out of his own homophobia or his own denial of himself. Right. He's killing him because on a gangster level, he says. I love you, and if I can't if I can't see your betrayal mm-hmm. because of my feelings about you, then what does that say about me? Right. Dang. Yeah. And, and that's just the ultimate gangster move, and you just like you know that breaks his heart because then yes. you, we deal with it in episode eight, mm-hmm. and it's just like it's just the really the complexities of it, and also the thing is is that he really is genuine in his love for for Mariah, and and I think what was great was that I think a lazy writer would have just ended it right there where he killed Comanche, but we're like throughout the show we see the fallout of him and especially when he snaps on Mariah I think she says something really 
nasty about Comanche. And then he almost chokes her out. And it was like, oh, he did love him. <laughs> I know it sounds messed but, up, but, but it was then, like. But then there was also that, that key moment where when after she gets up and she's smiling. Mm-hmm. The fact that, I mean, that, that's again, Alfred. Like, yeah. You know, yeah, Alfred's yeah. like, I'm not a victim. Mm-hmm. I don't want you feeling sorry for me because Chase choked me out. It's almost like this game because then when she gets up and she has that, that slight, like, almost like, uh, it's not really sexual, but it's this moment where she kind of gets up and she's, and she's not like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm heaving like I'm hurt. It's just almost like, yeah, see, I've always made you snap. Yeah. I, I'm still in control. Mm-hmm. He came it's, out of his face. It's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's just the nuance. I mean, that's yeah. the thing about when you're dealing with actors of the caliber of Alfie Woodard and Theo Rossi, it's just mm. like the emotional games they play with each other goes beyond the dialogue of scenarios. Yeah. And so I'm hoping that, you know, if anything, with the acting in, in, um, in season uh, two especially, that we transcend the genre or, mm. or people's expectations from the genre. Right. Well, I, I mean, I've talked to you. I was like, we need an Emmy campaign for the both of them. Cause, but, you know, still, because of the industry, they're still going to look at it like, oh, it's a comic book show. But it's like with Alfred, because I, I want to talk about her story arc. I mean, that performance, I was like, you could take that in any genre. Like, I would put that up there with, like, Viola Davis on How to Get It With Murder or whatever. And I think particularly with her story arc and the way that, sexual trauma and the PTSD that Mariah is going through or and is continuing to go through and we see that with um with Tilda mm-hmm. now I'm not gonna lie when they first revealed that she was uh, Mariah's daughter I was like what I don't see where this and then as the show progresses then you're like oh that's why they're estranged you know what I mean and I, I think is that episode eight or nine when they're holed up in Rand Industries it's episode nine. Oh my god that scene where Mariah and Tilda are talking to each other. And it was just this raw honesty where she was like, I tried to love you, but I can't. It's yeah. like, well, that, that's the thing was that scene in some ways was one of the most important scenes of the entire series. Mm-hmm. Because if that emotion read fake, it would have meant that the relationship between Tilda and Mariah read fake and that this whole premise, uh, particularly with knowing that where we were going to go, yes. that that would also feel false. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was one of those things where it's just like I just I hopped on a plane and said, like, this is important to be here and make absolutely sure that Alfrey was comfortable mm-hmm. to where emotionally she, you know, she needed to go. Because one of the things that she was talking about is like, wait a minute, in episode eight, we have this moment of kind of reconciliation in the shop. Mm-hmm. So how am I going to all of a sudden in episode nine turn this way? Right. And just being able to say, I know it's, it feels weird because you're thinking about episode eight, but we really need for you to go here in terms of this turn because mm-hmm. this is what's going to set up your emotional turn for episodes 10 in Gwen's restaurant, mm-hmm. episode 11 when you go even deeper, and by episode 12 and 13 where you just yeah. go all the way. Yeah. This, this moment is, is, is particularly important. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's the thing. I mean, what's important? when you talk about what what a showrunner's responsibility is. Mm. Showrunner ultimately has to be the safety net and the guide for the actors from the standpoint of the actors. All they want to know is what you want. Mm. And you have to be communicative. Some, sometimes what happens is that people get very insecure because actors have opinions. But you need those opinions. You need to those opinions because if you feel strongly about something, you really should justify and be able to articulate cleanly and clearly why you need to go there. But then at the same time, sometimes actors, that's why table reads are so important. Mm. You know, you want to understand 
from an emotional standpoint in terms of, of because actors make it real, like whether something works or not. Right. You know, and the thing that's really great about season two for me is that we have actors that love working with each other and always bring their A game. And mm. that's, that's the thing. It's like the same way that I can very easily and very passionately say that, yes, you know, um, I really hope that Alfred gets nominated. Mm. I could also say the same thing for Mike Coulter because that argument that he had with, with Rosario Dawson in episode three Woo! is some of the best acting I've ever seen. Yeah. Period. And, and, and not just from, from him. Yeah. You know, particularly sometimes where people will make criticisms about it, go, you know, I don't know. I mean, no, Mike Coulter is, 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 a, is a dope actor. Right. And then at the same time, also what Rosario did in that scene, mm-hmm. I thought was incredible. Simone Missick has so many incredible moments throughout the season. One of my favorites is that moment, you know, after Shades has this confession of killing Candace and that own... And you know, Everardo Gal puts the camera on her face, and she walks out. She's trying not to, yeah, not to go crazy. It's just like you see that moment. You're mm-hmm. like, wow. At the same time, also, I mean, Mustafa Shakir's depiction of Bushmaster is Sounds incredible. Good. Yeah, Gabrielle yeah. Dennis is like a slow burn the entire season. So mm-hmm. then, when she finally makes her turn, you're like, oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, and then also like another favorite moment for me was you know Luke and Ron Cephas Jones moment with Maze and Golden Time of Day. Yeah. At, at the end of episode four. Mm-hmm. It's another, you know, Matt Lopes, you know, wrote that really great moment. It's just, it's one of those things that it's just like, we just have really tour de force acting across the board. Mm-hmm. And I'm just hoping that people, you know, get over their anger at the death of Cottonmouth, really, <laughs> you know, to, <laughs> to really appreciate what we're trying to do. That, yeah. that, that was what, what prompted that tweet that, right. that, that, I, that, I, that I put out after Infinity War. Oh, like, boy. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because you know, because I thought a long time before putting that tweet out. I said, you know what? I said, I said you know what? Let, let me let me just show him what I really feel. And I, 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 that's when that's when I think I think my actual words were, you know, y'all niggas still mad about about Cottonmouth, <laughs> you know, ha- like like hashtag Infinity War, like where, right. where, where where they kill like what half half of the like like two, half of the cast, you know. So I was just like, it was really funny because. It was cathartic. Right, right. Because I put that out, and the mm. people's reactions, some people got the joke, some people uh-huh. were mad. Oh, boy. But there were all these different reactions. There were like yeah, 50 yeah. different reactions. And uh-huh. people were like, yeah, we still mad, but you know, we can't wait to see Luke season two. <laughs> I, I think people just finally said, all right, fine, we're over it now. Like, we're ready to yeah. see what's going to happen for season two. Yeah, I, I think, I personally think that they'll forgive you because I do feel that and when you kill a major character like that, right? Like, let's use Ned Stark as an example in Game of Thrones. Like when you kill a major character, what I'm looking for as a viewer is like, how is that going to serve the story? Like once you get over the shock value, but then really Cottonmouth's death was contextualized to me in season two. Cause even you were like, why did Mariah wail on him like that? And then when you see the, and you're like, oh, that's why, because it was the ultimate betrayal for Cottonmouth to say to her, you asked for it. You know, cause up until that point, we just thought that Pete was just being inappropriate with her. We didn't know the extent of the sexual abuse. And then to find out that he continually raped her and then impregnated her with Tilda, yeah, I would have thrown your ass out the window too. <laughs> yeah. and, and this is all this is all pre me too. Like, you know, yeah. like this whole thing that of all these all this unpacking and all these revelations mm-hmm. um, in terms of Hollywood, you know, happened um, really kind of came to 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 fruition in terms of us hearing about it after we had already filmed and 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 wrote these moments like it wasn't a reactionary thing on our part saying oh okay this is happening in in the culture and people are talking about this let's let's capitalize on it instead oh. it was just like 
you know, we went there and then all of a sudden it's like we're seeing that, okay, something that we're talking about here and all of a sudden is relevant. Oh, so you're saying that all of this stuff was shot before Me Too and Time's Up. Yeah, because was, that was something that I was talking with someone else who had already screened it. Um, I was like, yeah, I was like, I can already see that there's going to be a lot of uh, discussion and opinion pieces about that because it's very relevant to that. And then just last week, we find out Whitney that Whitney Houston was sexually abused by a female family member. So it's and, not and, unrealistic. And that's what was, that kind yeah. of, that just blew me away because I'm like, oh my God, like, you mm. know, her aunt was a female Uncle P. And I was just like, it just, I got chills, not only just because I just feel so bad for Whitney Houston and the family, and the, but also understanding from a fictional standpoint right. the kinds of things that we're writing about and these secrets and how they turn people inside out, mm-hmm. how it's not uncommon. Right. You know, and so it's just one of those things you just like, man, like I think it's going to have, like post the revelations of that documentary, I think it's going to have an interesting impact in terms of people reacting to that storyline um, right. on the show. Yeah, because I, I think that's it, we need to air that out because I think I read today they said um, – because I know last week they had sanctioned or a couple of weeks they had taken uh, R. Kelly off of their feature. But then they just did a report saying that people are downloading his music even more. Like he even has – like I remember when R. Kelly – when uh, Time's Up had announced Mute R. Kelly. They were joining the Mute R. Kelly, right? Mm-hmm. And what was crazy was like R. Kelly goes on Twitter. It's like 10, 11 o'clock in the morning. And he was like, yeah, I, I saw what you guys are doing. And then it was – it was terrifying to see how many black women were in support of him. Yeah. In his mentions, they were like, "Yeah, we support you, boo. We're gonna be a." Tr-. It's like, wow, we've got a lot of work to do. Yeah. A lot of work to do, and I think what was so we, on one side you saw a lot of black women supporting R. Kelly, and then on the other side, you had ashy Twitter, <laughs> as I like to tell them, that were like, "Oh well, you guys are going after R. Kelly, but what about these white guys? What about?" Harvey Weinstein and all these other people. And it's like, but what about the victims? The victims being young black girls and women who are not getting that justice. Exactly. You know what I mean? And that kind of goes into Mariah having to get her own justice because Mama Mabel didn't get it for her. I mean, she did in a way. But then to force her to have the baby was like. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it goes in the whole thing of, you know, sweep it under the rug. We take care of this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that so much of this kind of behavior doesn't get forgiven in families, but it's like, oh, well, so and so, like you know, keep 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 the children away from Uncle So and So, you know, at, right. you know, like it's just like this one thing that happens right. at the, at the family cookout, and you're just like, well, why are we being forgiving of this kind of behavior? Right, you know, and you can't just all smack it off to okay, just because we emerged and survived, you know, oppression. Right. That uh, we're going to, you know, not call the man on, mm-hmm. on our people, take care of it. Right. You know, these are deep seated problems that you mm-hmm. know, need to be unpacked and need to be talked about. Right. Well, I, I think one of the things that I, I especially love about season two is that there's a balance where we can talk about the neck, like the sexual trauma and non consensual sex, but also balance with a lot of positive consensual sex. <laughs> Um, like episode three it was episode three because I was like I gotta talk to you about this scene Uh, it was episode three where we open up the scene with Bushmaster in bed yeah and he (laughs) leans over and kisses his girlfriend and then he leans over and kisses his other girlfriend I was like so you've got three sons in the Marvel universe I love it but it was beautifully shot. Yeah, like no so, what was who? What, what was the composition? Like, how was the shooting of that scene? Well, you know, the thing was, was it was just like, um, well, like, why not? Right. <laughs> <You> know, <it laughs> was just, 
it was it was one of those things where it's just like okay yes he's cavalier mm-hmm. and, and yes you know he's he's very kind of smug about it like you know me 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 just had two cups of coffee. Yes. <laughs> you know, but, <laughs> you know, it's just one of those things where it's like we're not afraid of sexuality, mm-hmm. period. Right. Whether it's December May sexuality with, with Shades of Mariah, whether it's polyamorous sexuality in terms of, mm-hmm. you know, the Bushmaster moment, in terms of yeah. even talking about sexual trauma. Mm-hmm. The thing is, it's like um, I, as a showrunner, like, you know, complex depictions of sensuality. So, mm-hmm. so, so for me... The love scene in, in, in with with Misty and Luke in season one. Right. Um, I remember like when we shot it, and I remember calling from the set. I called Ali. I said, "Yo, mm-hmm. y- you got to come up with some Al Green. I'm glad you mind type shit because this scene is hot." <laughs> <laughs> and, yes, it was. And then you know that's immediately when he kind of like you know emailed me about five hours later the music that we ended up using for that scene. Right. You know. Right. And this, and then ultimately the thing was was um, the reason that we used Night Nurse. Mm-hmm. which is one of my favorite Gregory Isaacs songs. Mm-hmm. Um, I always knew that at some point I was going to use that song because, you know, that kind of, it's an inside joke because, right. you know, of course, people thought that Claire, you know, Claire's character was going to be the night nurse. Right, you know? yeah. And so I just always knew at some point we were going to use that song. Mm-hmm. And it was just really, it was just a great moment of, of using that song, you know, in, in the love scene in, in, in season two. Right. You know, in, in episode one. Yeah. Where just really, you kind of, just have this moment and it's just like it's reggae and, and, and it's and it's Gregory Isaacs and it's just you know just kind of an all you know a message to the Caribbean audience that like like we're really taking this seriously right you know trying to get it culturally right but then at the same time it's just like kind of just having this moment where, where Luke is dancing and you know mm-hmm. just a different side like you know really trying to bring humanity to Luke I mean right. you know the one you know the one thing I always talk about is that um Angelica J. Bastian's recaps mm-hmm. of the show were just very brilliantly written. Right. Even when they were painful. Oh, I, she was tough on you. Oh, <laughs> I mean, man. But see, this is how I knew you were real because you were never, like, you would have dialogue with her because I, I know Angelica. Like, you would have genuine dialogue with her, but it was never, like, from a place of being defensive, like, well, you're wrong because I have seen that. Not naming a certain black showrunner, but I do have a friend who's a reviewer. They did a recap of a very famous black sitcom and this black showrunner came at her and he was like I didn't like this recap and how dare you write these things and I'm like that's not how you do it sir because well, you know the thing is is that like as a former critic mm-hmm. like I've done that yes as a former critic like I've I've written just like scathing reviews. Mm. I remember I wrote a review of Chuck D of uh, Public Enemy's Music and Our Message mm-hmm. that was <laughs> I look at it now and I'm Woo! like I, I I called it a a a Dante spiral in the hip hop hell. <laughs> you know, like spicy. <laughs> you know, um, and there have been times okay where like okay, I still feel like I'm right about that. Yeah. And the thing is, is that when I would run into Chuck D and Chuck would talk, you know, Chuck because he respected me as a writer mm-hmm. said this is your opinion, but it wasn't like he took it personally, and right. I learned from that, and yeah. so that's why. You know, being on the other side now, like looking back, it's like I think that's why I was able to really be able to read her criticisms and be able to understand, mm. you know, where she was coming from. Right. Um, and then that's the thing was to me, it's like I didn't see it as a challenge. I saw it as these reviews, either when scathing, are so well thought out mm. and so well written. Right. That it behooves us as a writing staff to read all 13 of these. Oh, so you made them read them? Absolutely. Wow. 
let's read all 13 of these because this is this is the opposition research. Mm-hmm. Like this, let, let, let's not saying that she's opposition, right. but like let's opposition research. I like that. Let's look at this. Yeah. Let's understand what our weaknesses are. Mm-hmm. Let's put them all. Let's pull. Let's put it all out on the table. Right. And say, okay, how are we going to address this? Because yeah. these are such well written, you know, moments on a real time basis about the show. Like, let's use this. Right. And that was, you know, the thing about um, how that happened, and I think really became a positive because then it was a, we were able to say, okay, let's figure out you know one of the main things that stung me the most was like you know they imagine luke cage is this but they never bothered to imagine him as a man i was like, <laughs> I was just like what yeah. okay so, so i said okay <laughs> like so how do we do that mm-hmm. how do we show luke cage is a man mm. how do we reveal that he's as angry as pain there are things that he should you know unpack right and get, get into Mm-hmm. How do we do that by reintroducing his father? How do we do that in terms of his his, his relationship with Claire? How is he going to react to defeat? Right. You know, these are all the things that we did because, as fascinating and as interesting as the Stokes and the MacGyvers are, it's the show is called Luke Cage. Right. So we always need to make sure that no matter what's happening in an episode, that we understand and we thread Luke's emotional journey. Mm-hmm. And that was the one thing that I think because we had so many like offsets in season one that we really paid attention to in season two and, and let's make sure that no matter what happens right from beginning middle and end and particularly at the end of season two it's luke's emotional journey yeah. yeah no i i was actually uh talking to a friend of mine and i was like it really felt to me like when i watched season two it felt like the criticisms or the critiques from season one, like, I don't want to say course correct, but Mm -hmm. I I felt like you listened, like you were listening. Like one of the examples was the use of the N word, Mm -hmm. right? One of the critiques from season one was who gets to use the N word and who doesn't get to use the N word on Luke Cage. And so there was this whole debate or uh, discourse about black respectability, right? Mm -hmm. Like, why is it that Cottonmouth is the one and the villains or, you know, the bad guys, so to speak, are using the N-word, but Luke isn't using the N-word and Misty isn't using the N-word. And so it's interesting to see the second season, it's like... Well, I mean, but but here's the thing. It was like, you know, because I I, I hate the whole respectability politics. Mm -hmm. Nigga, please. (laughs) You know... Like because I mean because you gotta understand my background. I mean I'm I'm a an NWA listening Grand Theft Auto San Andreas to five playing right. You know hardcore people can can read like my profiles over the years. Yeah, there's nothing in respectability politics about me at all. Right. And so I kind of took that one personal. You know I thought it was, I thought it was pretty. You know I thought it was interesting. The reason that happened, honestly, is because when you look at not knowing how, um, I'm just, I'm just going to speak personally from being 45 years old and kind of coming from my generation of, 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 of hip-hop journalists. Okay. Um, yes, we were there and supported, of course, Biggie and Tupac and NWA's use of the constant use of the word nigga. Mm-hmm. But there was always a certain level of, of, of politics to it. So it was never that you, you know, celebrated being a nigga and being happy about it. Or there was always a certain, even when NWA, like there's a difference between Straight Outta Compton, where it's almost like a hardcore political commentary versus Niggas for Life, where it was almost like a celebration of it. But the thing was, was that there was always like, you weren't going to have people that were just like, yeah, you know, I'm going to use this word and not have any repercussions of thinking about it. And so the whole thing was, let's have different reactions to this word. Okay. Let's have... Mariah say, 
I despise that word in episode one. Mm -hmm. And then by episode 13, you can't trust niggas around equipment. <laughs> she used it a lot in season but, two. <laughs> because it, it, it shows her evolution from being somebody, mm -hmm. her respectability politics to the, by the end being, mm -hmm. you know, revealing her inner stokes. Right. And Cottonmouth's whole thing is he's not using the word because he feels this form of, you know, degradation. He's like, he's, he's saying, you know, Nobody respects it, you know. You know, everybody underestimates a nigga because he's he's using it from the standpoint of this is what you think about me, but you'll never see me coming. So mm. he has a different perspective. It's not that he's a villain using the word, right? You know, you have this ignorant kid who's saying the word one way, and Luke reminding him of, of okay, like, you know, I've gone through this day where I've lost my best friend, and it's my fault because I didn't step up. So that's that, he's not angry at the kid just for using the word. He's angry at himself for not stepping up. And so that's when when he kind of reverses the words. All right, fine, you know, the, I'll, you know, pull the trigger, nigga. Mm. You know, he has a whole different reaction to it. It's an it's an emotional thing for him. It's not respectability politics from that standpoint. Right. I mean, people are saying, okay, so fine. In episode two, he doesn't like Donald Goins because you know he wrote about criminals and died like one, and that was kind of you know pops chiding him, saying, hey man, like don't don't act as if you're above and don't be all Fox News about it. Mm. I mean, you know, these whole things. I mean, that's the whole point of yeah. having five or six different perspectives is that conversations are supposed to come from these kinds of things. Right. Because nobody's talking about it anymore. Mm. People are just kind of just accepting the word and it's used in music for rhythm as opposed to really thinking about it. It's like you, you have to keep throwing it into the art and you, and because these debates shouldn't stop. But it has right. nothing to do with respectability politics. It has, it has everything to do with us as, as a community, you know, deciding what we think about these things. Right. And now basically having a certain control over, over black popular culture now where in hip hop, we've always had this diversity of these depictions and only for the first time in film and television do we have an equal diversity and say and control over our, our images and ourselves where we finally can't let go of everything having to be shiny and clean mm. because you know you, you can go in these different directions creatively now that you couldn't 10, 15 years ago. Right. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Spectrum Lounge. Be sure to catch part two of our interview with Cheo Coker next week. You can find him on Twitter at Cheo underscore Coker. You can also find our host, Rebecca Theodore Bashan, on Twitter at FilmFatale underscore NYC. You can help support the Spectrum Lounge by becoming a patron at www.patreon.com forward slash film fatale underscore nyc intro and outro music to this episode is courtesy of n stens 1117 on youtube thank you for listening until next time <laughs>